0: Okay, that appears to be working.
1: Loud boy says, Nobody else but me. At the signal,
0: time will be out of joint.
1: Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I'm here with Lucy. Hello. This month we're turning our attentions outside the Anglosphere and taking our first steps into Japanese cinema. Lucy, tell the lovely people at home what we're talking about today.
0: Okay, um, well I think I just want to start with what we're not talking about because I'm going to be... This is something that I came across in my research. Well, actually, no, it's it's a thing that's out there in the world, but basically I'm going to be avoiding using the term J-horror for the purposes of this episode because uh, J-horror, as much as we want to get onto the subject, refers to essentially post-90s or post-2000s horror from Japan, which deals a lot with themes arising from the um, burst of the economic bubble of the 1980s in Japan and the strange kind of cultural dissolution that followed that. And is kind of the better known uh, form of Japanese horror cinema that has, a, in terms of like its currency outside of Japan and in the UK.
1: So that's movies like Ring, that's movies like The Grudge. Um... uh.
0: on ka- Chaos. Uh, chaos? I, th- I think it's actually just ka- Chaos. What we're going to be talking about here is Japanese horror before 1980, essentially. And just dealing with a couple, well, initially dealing with a couple of the key issues arising thence. So one of the things that I found I think is most pertinent to the purposes of this show in terms of what we've covered so far is um, something that came up in our discussion of Nosferatu and the importance of the Weimar cinema, The sense that the great kind of cultural flourishing of uh, Weimar Germany, with all its strange and intense uh, innovations in the arts and literature and music, um, effectively resulted from the cultural introversion that arose from a uh, catastrophic military defeat. And we kind of see a version of that happening in Japan. Or at least that kind of was my starting point in doing research for this, this idea that I think, kind of, in the wake of World War Two, for one thing, there was a massive influx of uh, of uh, culture from abroad. So, yeah, specific, particularly Western culture, which came in and was adapted freely into a lot of different things. And so, we see a very, very just fruitful period of cinematic innovation uh, during that period. But also, uh, on the point of the the introspection, we find one of the things is. Um, a kind of a freewheeling, a free-wheeling attitude towards subversion. Um, this is the thing, I think the line I got from that book, which I think it was something from Mercer, uh, wrote it. That line about how um, the cultural realisation that your parents were always wrong uh, as, as having this intense kind of liberatory power that meant that you could really push it in terms of like really out there stuff. But I think that's something I kind of wanted to pull back from a bit, having set that up in the Nosferatu episode. Um, Just because, well, beginning my research, I found that there was actually a more complicated picture. Um, I just wanted to kind of also give a caveat up up front, that we're going to be talking about kind of weird Japan in a lot of detail, I think, in this this episode. And I think, you know, that warrants a necessary caveat. So Japanese culture isn't... um, inherently weird but then again um it, there's a necessary kind of subdivision between unintentionally weird shit uh intentionally weird shit intentionally subversive stuff um stuff that seems weird through um unfamiliarity or stuff that is uh playing up to us certain unfamiliarity um as a ca- or, or things that are kind of come across as unfamiliarity which we see as a kind of counter which could be countered with this idea that um we have things that are unfamiliar in our own culture, which uh, we have rendered familiar. Uh, so I think just keeping keeping those gloves on for the purposes yeah. of this discussion, which we're, we're going to get into a lot of detail. Yes, yeah, so a
1: narrative that um, we don't want to be uh, pushing is that uh, of the notion that there is something just, you know, the inherently strange, uh, perverse character of Japanese culture, which is the product, you know, the, pro- the product of the orientalizing mind uh, and isn't. A million miles away from you know, the notion of, you know, uh, of um, uh, the of Jap- the Japanese as, as, in, as the inscrutable presence of some kind. It's the that there's there's strange things in Japanese culture as there are in all cultures, both to those within that and without within that culture and about that culture. But uh, what is
0: weird is also beautiful and glorious, and that's something I think is going to be is going to be expressed very strongly in um, in the episode that when the discussion is to come. Hopefully, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, so one of the things that I was, I was saying about how it feels like a more complex picture of, um, of uh, the post-war effect. Um, one, of the, one of these ideas that um, I found was that while there's this idea of the kind of like the Weimar feeling, uh, the liberation from the past, the questioning and upheaval of old power structures, it kind of felt like um, a lot of those power structures, while not necessarily re- remaining in place, Uh, What appeared to arise from that was a certain sense of cultural fixedness, Uh, this idea that, um, because to draw a kind of like a very, very um, generalizing, well, (laughs) necessarily generalizing picture, it is very much a culture of like, You get an impression of like kind of respecting the past as something separated um which i think comes up very strongly in the film we're going to be discussing uh but i guess that separation can have a dual thing as in like kind of you respect the elders as this thing that's distant but at the same time um you're operating in a separate sphere and that's not that's not a theorem that i've either invented or regard as complete in that sense but this is sort of a, a lot of the reasoning that we approached what is essentially something very new to both of us, um, or at least new to this podcast? And, yes, it and should this type be analysis.
1: Yes, it should perhaps be said that um, although there is, there is a um, <clears throat> excuse me, we're at points where the comparison between post uh, Second World War Japan and uh, Weimar Germany points where these comparisons break down, arguably is when we start to th- is when we think about sort of like how radical the cultural shifts. That um, occur in those points actually are like relative to themselves, like yeah. um, because you know, the American occupiers, the Allied occupiers in Japan, one of like MacArthur's priorities was to preserve a se- was deliberately to preserve a sense of continuity, which isn't what happens in Germany, where if where it is there isn't a concerted sort of like direct force trying to maintain continuity with Germany's past. There is a, there is rather. A profound sense of we need to sort of like punish and destroy the Hun, and Germany itself obviously goes through an enormous, um, the, uh, the, um, enormously culturally and politically and socially significant so like conflagration to the years immediately after the war. Yeah, and then, well, yeah. While well, Japan, yeah, the emperor, like MacArthur was insisting that the emperor still had to be considered an inviolate force. Within a Japanese culture, the, that the the emperor and no member of the imperial family should ever be held for account for the war crimes that Japan committed, uh, while focusing all of that on the milit or all you know, the sort of the forces of justice on the military, on the uh, the government, but not on like the imperial sovereignty. Mm. Um, and so there is still this, um, so there is still that that continuity still exists much more, arguably perhaps in perhaps a much more concrete way than uh you have with uh Germany after war, where there is a very abrupt upheaval in the nation which is still relatively young as a unified force. Mm. Well Japan uh, you, could, you could uh well Japan arguably in a certain sense perhaps it wouldn't be accurate to say it was going through it had been going through a period of of alienation from itself since the Meiji era. I'm not sure that would be entirely accurate to say. But Japan had been very much questioning what it meant to be Japan since like the 1860s or 70s I think it was when the Meiji restoration occurred that was the period where the Meiji emperor decided to sort of like very very specifically that okay Japan has to radically and rapidly specifically westernize in order to avoid the fate of uh, other nations in Asia which had been colonized okay we have to be like these westerners in order to resist them which is why and that's where a lot of the western Imagery and aesthetic in Japan specifically comes from. That's why Japanese schoolgirls wear Prussian naval uniforms mm. and stuff. That's where, So there's all. So um, that yeah. So these questions and this unstable instability, arguably, uh, well maybe maybe not instability isn't the word I want to use. But this, with this sense of a of a questioning of what Japan should be, especially in the face of the West, it was already deeply culturally embedded by the time the war came to an end and the mm. A bomb was dropped.
0: And, and that, I mean, that's quite pertinent to um, a lot of what I came across in my research in terms of uh, the horror genre as a whole in Japan during these years. Um, there was a very good book, actually, uh, which I used as one of my main references, um, which is um, which was edited by um, a man named James McCroy. I think it's just called Japanese horror cinema. And uh, one of the most interesting things about that is one of the key things that is worth bearing in mind with any approach to uh, Japanese cinema, and come well in in terms of like um, speculative cinema, so both horror and sci-fi and things, is the spectre of nuclear war uh, because they are the only um, country in the world to have ever actually had a, well, um, to have ever experienced nuclear war directly. Yeah, uh, and so the spectre of uh, the explosions at Hiroshima and Nagasaki are a very very potent force uh, and come out in things like and come you know, come out very strongly in things like the Godzilla movies uh or gojira um mm. <laughs> uh, to use the non-anglicized version you know that and that that obviously comes across um comes comes a lot into other things uh to date which i'm sure we're going to be talking about um in uh later episodes but the other thing that McCroy puts up is this uh there's a sense of a kind of jewel specter present in a lot of these films one is the nuclear bomb and the other is capitalism essentially because um uh, well, because, you know, in, in the years following the war, there was something that would be regarded, uh, you know, a series of economic booms, a ver- a period of very rapid recovery in kind of the decades following. It's yeah, so uh, somewhat comparable
1: with Germany when there was uh, um, in the... Actually, I don't know anything about German <laughs> economic history, so just pretend you didn't hear well, that. Well, no, there was, there was a thing that is
0: uh, widely regarded as like the economic miracle of the ni- late 40s and 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh this meant that you know there was obviously rapid modernization with the uh, westernization that you describe in great detail but there is there is also just a wider cultural phenomenon that comes up in a lot of countries where there's sudden and violent exposure to intense um volatile capitalist forces which I well actually this is a concept I first came across uh, in interestingly a documentary about Scandinavian horror uh, or, Sc- or scandi crime dramas particularly um that period in uh, well there's an equivalent. the equivalence I would draw is the fact that people talk about uh Norway as being well, you know Norway is now like an extremely wealthy country and has a lot of kind of inwardly turned wealth and went through a great kind of explosion of development in the 1990s but up until that point it had more or less been regarded as one of the poor fringes of Europe and a lot of the kind of pervading cultural paranoia that comes across in Scandi horror is uh, this idea that um, the country is somehow losing its soul through this pr- rapid process of change. And the way McCroy describes the um, the series of economic booms culminating in uh, the Great One in the 1980s, which was then per- succeeded by a kind of bubble and a lost generation in the 90s, as... Uh, It feels it felt to be more or less mirroring that. And so there's a much more subtle and more kind of insidious cultural paranoia or paranoia surrounding, um, surrounding culture and surrounding uh, one's connection to the past and one's own identity or collective identity uh, resulting from that. Um, I'm
1: actually, uh, I'm watching a uh, Norwegian uh, drama on Netflix at the moment, it's my kind of like downtime TV called Occupied, which, is very, which was recommended to me by a friend of the show, Rowan. Hello, Rowan. Um, <laughs> where, um, which is very much an acting out of sort of Norway's various kind of sort of like paranoias and insecurities about itself and its relationship with its neighbours, which is simply sort of um, the Norwegian Prime Minister announces that they've discovered a new completely clean fuel, and so they're going to turn off all of the gas Pipes and all that And and the oil refineries So Russia and the EU just occupy Norway Kind of like very, very quietly And stealthily to make sure this doesn't happen And it is very And it has, um, yeah It's very much exploring those themes that you just described um, Of this kind of like set, This sense of a uh, Culture which is no longer entirely certain What it's about or what its relationship With, it, with um, its neighbours are And the yeah, so just, yeah, this is something that, um, this is something, quite a universal experience in some ways, where, cult, where culture or a country which is undergo which is or has undergone a rapid shift like
0: that. Mm. Uh, I have a quote here, actually, by, uh, from an essay by a, a man, uh, someone called uh, Takashi Murakami, um, which was flagged up, in fact, in an article about House uh, by... Um, in a blog by someone called Brooke Ellsworth, who I wasn't previously familiar with, but um, I felt that feeling up pretty well, which is, uh, it begins, um, But everyone who lives in Japan knows something is wrong. Still, it's not worth a second thought. Young girls butchered, piles of cash donations scattered recklessly on foreign soil. The quest for catharsis through volunteerism, a brazen media prepared to swallow press restrictions in support of economic growth. Doorways of passably comfortable one-room apartments adorned meaninglessly with amulet stickers of, from Secom, a private security company. Uh, safe and sound hysteria. Japan may be the future of the world, and now Japan is super flat. Which I thought <laughs> it's quite interesting. Good, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this this is um, this is kind of like the context we find um, the discussion in. Uh, or you know the context we find ourselves when approaching kind of pre nineteen eighties uh, Japanese horror um, specific and 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 in that context actually there's another interesting comparison that does come across uh, very directly uh, with the what with what we found in Weimar cinema and Weimar culture um, which is the um, the heavy presence of um, well the, the heavy presence of folklore and folk tradition in new media especially especially in horror in fact um you know just a brief glance through um i don't know a brief glance through kind of pre-1980s japanese horror and a glance through um horror afterwards there is an interesting shift um because even though there's a lot of kind of uh ghosts and um folk demon type entities present in um in post-1980s japanese horror a lot of that is also dealing with um urban environments in a very particular way which i want to cover actually in more detail uh in a future episode but um pre pre 1980s a large number of them are effectively folk horror uh we get things like um the film kwaidan uh onibaba throne of blood which i actually just want to cover at some point on this podcast because that I've is never seen it oh my god shame. it is absolutely beautiful mm. um my mom used to my mom's an well used to be an english teacher and used to show it while she was teaching macbeth because it's it's essentially um akira kurosawa's uh, adaptation of macbeth and it's extremely intense and beautiful um but also we get more we get more fun things like we get this thing um that's perhaps a a lot closer to what we're going to be covering today called um uh yokai monsters spook warfare which was uh i've never actually seen it but i've seen clips just this wonderfully nightmarishly surreal um Kind of, it's it's weird actually. It's based on adventures of this one Japanese folk hero, just encountering a series of other monster, well, other a series of monsters derived from different bits of Japanese folklore. The most striking of which I found is like this terrifying umbrella demon. <laughs> um, which yeah, I just want to do that either for one of our bonus episodes or, or just a future one of these. But um, but there's something there's something I found quite striking in that parallel of uh, evoking folklore. Um, which is i find i find it can, it kind of can have a dual character because obviously there's something inherently sort of um, nationalistic about um about kind of invoking uh folkloric traditions in a time of a kind of military defeat because it's this sense that like no we're a much there's that universal thing. It's like, we're a much older nation than this. We will weather more things. We have this history. This is just the the the, the present. And also it's a reminder of kind of, this is something quintessentially of that nation that needs to be revived and uh, have strength drawn from it. Um, but I also find there's something inherently subversive about it. Uh, or not necessarily subversive, although um, that can come into it, but something kind of rebellious about it. There's a form of more insidious resistance. Um, And this is actually something that came up when I, um, during, um, again, during my researches for the Nosferatu episode, uh, which came from the Mark Gatiss documentary we talked about, um, where there was a kind of, there's this sense that Mark Gatiss, that he described briefly, but kind of left it hanging. But it is a very interesting point, this idea of um, a kind of a country going through a period of introspection conjuring up the darkest things that it can imagine usually from a kind of cultural imagination or, some, or you know, specifically something drawn up from the past and hence why there was such a proliferation of very germanic gothic horror in the weimar era that came out a lot through uh, expressionism this this kind of i don't know a kind of rebelliousness a kind of show of strength and i guess sort of not quite nihilism, but, you know, um, that uh, there was something inherently subversive about that. Um, the fact that in, in German uh, literature and art around that time, they would draw on the very darkest things from folklore, or even, like, from less uh, focused traditions, but... Um... Oh, oh, your folkloric <laughs> traditions. I didn't say volkish, though, that's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, you know, they would draw... Um, one of the figures that I mentioned briefly when we were talking about The Uncanny way back in episode three, uh, E.T.A. Hoffman became... Had something of a revival in that time and that was very much like just here's the darkest shit we could find in our history let's let's celebrate this and it's unclear where that what the internal logic of that was or if or even even if there was a consci- conscious logic to it but it's just interesting how that comes out and um one of the things that we see uh, mirrored in um in japanese horror um is the bringing out of the the weirder traditions and i think these are things that are acknowledged as being strange traditions um in their own context um coming out in in japanese horror and hence why there's there's a lot of um there's there's this emphasis on folk horror but i don't know maybe that's something that we can we can explore at a later point but I, i just find that kind of interesting um there's also just something very much to be said about um the the strangeness and the gruesomeness of um Japanese folk traditions as there are in um as there are in British folk traditions that's actually a point I want to talk about later um as to why um why I kind of highlight that equivalency there but um there's one of the things that um comes up in McCroy's opening essay is talking about um how how Japanese body horror drew on um what were very much culturally ingrained um traditions of things like uh ritual self mutilation uh so there there's one right that involved i um i can't remember which one it exactly is because there are different variations on the theme but one that involves the kind of offering up one's own intestines and also you know there's looking through some of the the kind of folkloric stuff and the artwork that comes out of it there's there's an interesting quali- very distinctive quality of body horror inherent in that from a long time ago that um that really comes to the fore also a lot of stuff. When people talk about, like, strange stuff from Japan, they will often focus on the the connections with the alien as well, which I, I don't think is necessarily pertinent to this film that we're going to be covering, but um, but it's something, again, I want to bring up, and it connects with the body horror thing. But, Sean, have you ever seen... Um, it's translated into English as Dream of the Fisherman's Wife. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah,
1: the um, woman copulating with an octopus.
0: Yeah. Um, that is something... I mean, that's a as well as being just an extremely bracing graphic image, um, it's interesting as well just how contemporary it feels, the fact that this is like mid-19th century that this was made. And... um... I I guess like you know we can draw own equivalency with Maldo there. but yeah,
1: yeah. I, th- I think it's not a controversial point to state that um sexual mores in um Japan uh, and uh, other other sort of um South Asian East Asian countries are, are have a different cultural route mm. to um ours because in, in the west um our set our views on sex have been very very much um have been very much um uh, forged in uh, Judeo the Judeo Christian, which is actually I'm not going to say Judeo Christian because that's like a quite a fash term. That it turns out, but yeah, the uh, but, yeah, sort of, like because of the um, in the inherit the the Christian and sort of like through that the Jewish inheritance of yeah, sort of, um, of of that view on sex, which isn't something that and obviously the. Cultures that don't have that shared history, they think about these things differently and have different standards for um acceptable representation and so on and mm. discussion. There's being said, I don't know and I, I know of the painting, but I don't know anything about what like um the what surrounded it, so okay. to speak, of sort of like what the the reaction of its publication of its um publication was or anything. So well uh...
0: I I found out secondhand through someone who um, knows Japanese what the text is, uh, which is interesting because um it's Actually, it's not actually called "Dream of the Fisherman's Wife." That was the English translation because um, the Victorians, fi- I'm ge- I think Victorians at the time finding <laughs> it, uh, didn't really couldn't really conscience the idea that it was a female fish, a fishing person whose job was to fish. Um, so, um, yeah, there it is. Sean has just called it up, and it's it's very striking. But I'm You've sure seen I, say, her I, think out. I, I think I've <laughs> seen different versions. But no, the text around it is. Um, is onomatopoeic slurping sounds and the little one is saying um i think something like can i go after you uh, but anyway i don't know i don't know what necessarily if there is a central thesis to what we're discussing here this is just the fact that this is the first episode we've encountered um japanese themes and we're trying to get our head around it because this isn't this isn't new to us but it's new to it's new to us in terms of talking about it um and so we're going to be... I want, I want to cover a lot of Japanese stuff to come and a lot of like wider Asian cinema as well. Um, but I think I think this section can be roughly... This part of um, the introduction can be roughly rounded up by uh, making a comparison with the quote that um, I brought up again in the Nosferatu episode uh, about Siegfried Krakauer uh, in Caligari to Hitler. This idea of... Um, w- oh, I actually, I can't find the quote. I will try and find the quote and post it, but it is stuff about kind of the final the long uh delayed bearing of the german soul um which western audience or um, american and british audiences couldn't necessarily come to terms with in the immediate term but um there's definitely something of equal potency in the bearing of the japanese soul that comes to bear in the post post world war Two cinema and culture
1: um I, i'm yeah. wondering just um I, 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 or rather, it occurs to me now, how little I know about um, German culture after World War II.
0: Werner Herzog. <laughs> it
1: was, oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's yeah. very much a bearing. Economic
0: order. revival, Werner Herzog, Wim uh, Wenders. Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk. And all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, Eventually
1: Rammstein.
0: Yes, culminating in Rammstein. <laughs> um, one of the other things, actually, that I did want to bring up, which again is personal, this is... This is as much a primer for us as it is for you listener. possibly more emphasis on us um, but we
1: have no idea what we're talking about we just hope but we're we don't trying <laughs> dear
0: God, we're trying you know and I think that's a sentiment shared by anyone who's who's covered the film we're going to be covering, which I realize we've made a lot of references to without naming, but Sean will do it in a minute but um one of the other things I wanted to bring up was uh, there's this sense of kind of an identification with the monstrous that we. We talked about in um, talked about briefly in the Momo episode, but that's something I want to return to. But one of the things that I think is key to the tone of um, a lot of Japanese uh, media that we plan to cover is this concept of cuteness. This idea of taking kind of sinister, sinister, malevolent things and rendering them in an almost kind of satirical or jokey format, and making them kind of homely uh, and hence, you know. This um, and the, you know this is something that comes up the fact that a lot of ghost things, um, I know, a lot of monstrous things are rendered in a very kind of cute or gimmicky way alongside uh, more horrific depictions. And there's also just a general emphasis on the on the kawaii, the, the quintessential kawaii. Mm. Um, and this is something actually I mentioned the quote from uh, Takeshi Murakami earlier about um, the the book. Well, it's from the book uh, Earth in My Window. Um Takashi Murakami actually went on to read some of that book. It does actually it turned out have a fairly political bent, largely seemingly in favor or at least um in the in the cultural territory of the remilitarization of Japan. Um and it describes this focus on cuteness and um what what they describe as a kind of cultural infantilization effect. Um that they they flag it up as as Partly not so much well as a counterpoint to that thing I mentioned about the bearing of the soul, something of a concealing this sense that um having having this focus on cuteness and quirkiness is a way of deflecting or not coming to terms with um crimes committed by a nation in its recent past um and that is that is something that Japan did that's very. That was, you know, the opposite of post-Nazi World War, uh, post post World War Two Germany, uh, where you know there's they put a huge amount of stress on coming to terms with this. Um, there's just kind of a very different attitude to it, and and hence why um, there's been a a lot of stress on. I guess you know why some um, outstanding grievances with Japan and Korea have just lasted as long as they have. Uh, the fact that it's just culturally not spoken about um and and you know we get things like the fact that um the the staff of unit 731 which uh, don't google unless you're really want, want to have a bad afternoon but they effectively kind of well like many staff of us which just got like disappeared back either into into japan or the states um and weren't really held to task in the same way you know someone like uh albert Speer or you know the the nazi top brass were Um, But that's that's very interesting. And also, you know, this is something we're seeing this this kind of contrasting of cuteness with um, very recent brutality and and a kind of cognitive dissonance arising out of that, I think, is something that is is a very potent force.
1: And that's why tonight we are going to be talking about house. House is a psychedelic fantasy horror film directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi and written by Chiho Katsura, based off, of a, based off a story originally conceived by the director's preteen daughter, Chigumi Obayashi.
0: Just uh, a mention, like it doesn't say how old she was in any of the texts I found, just that she wasn't yet a teenager. It
1: follows the story of a schoolgirl, named simply Gorgeous, who, following a dispute with her widowed father over his decision to remarry, changes her summer plans at the last minute to visit her long-estranged aunt to the countryside, where she ventures with her gang of school friends, all of whom are similarly, similarly named for their central determining characteristics. Gorgeous, Kung Fu, Prof as in Professor, Fantasy, Melody, Sweet and Mac. On arrival, they find that all is not as it seems, the idyllic rural home they envisioned turns out to be a brooding gothic horror castle populated with strange characters and vengeful spirits and as the film progresses all but one of the girls is systematically killed off in spectacularly bloody and absurd fashion including decapitation and transmogrification into a watermelon hot tub drownings, a clock that eats people, a murderous piano and drowning in a lake of blood. Eventually the last of the girls, Gorgeous, appearing to have survived the night and being met by her new adoptive mother, is revealed to have become part of the evil embodied in the house, and the curse is perpetuated. <laughs>
0: Um, So thinking about where we would locate this film in uh, what we've been talking about in terms of its cultural and historical context and thematic context, uh, this is, uh, I guess, um, going back to the uh, the McCroy thesis. I don't think this is necessarily directly dealing with uh, that um, that spectre of capitalism we talked about, but I think it is. Doing that on an inherent level uh, because it's it's kind of leaving the city for the countryside, so is showing it via negation. But the very very prominent theme in this, I found, is well, not I found one of the one <laughs> of the most prominent themes in this is the nuclear legacy, um, which is which is striking for a film about um, about a bunch of schoolgirls going to a murder house in the countryside.
1: Yes, this was something that uh, appeared a lot in uh, Obiashi's uh, oeuvre um apparently the um I can't remember the exact number but in the uh, the criterion edition of uh blue edition of house there's a very good little uh, video essay I forget who who it's by unfortunately but we'll put that out there in the show notes as always uh, but they comments in that that um like images of the atom bomb going off appears throughout his um career in his films and indeed as a boy, he saw the mushroom cloud over Nagasaki.
0: Yeah, and so. this is well, this is kind of this is quite key to to the film because um, in a, in a very kind of uh, disconnected way, it is autobiographical because he not only witnessed the um, the events of um, Nagas- was it Hiroshima or Nagasaki? It was Nagasaki. He he not only witnessed the events of Nagasaki, but he lost all his childhood friends in that um, in that explosion, and so um, this is effectively you know him. This is a story of someone losing all their friends again, um, but via a murder house which has very, very potent symbolism, connecting to the new, you, to the nuclear configuration of Nagasaki. Um, throughout it, really, there's um, there's that flashback bit which actually does have footage of, which has footage of World War Two, but they just call it a big war long ago. Mm. Um, but you know, there's that, but also um, there's a constant presence of like mushroom clouds and things, and there's just this. Ge- a lot of the, a large part of the plot revolves around the fact that um, the estranged aunt is a kind of spectral witch figure who is who is pretty much killing off all the all the children, and she she is not so much representative of that. Well, I mean, we've got a whole thesis about what she is. I mean, what do you? How? I guess I'll put this as a question to you. Like, what do you think the aunt is?
1: Well, I think I, the way that I view her, because she is like to be clear, like within the the story she is um it's essentially she is meant to be a ghost of some kind or she's some kind of like revenant almost maybe um for me what she is if we do um uh, if in the film it's it's almost as if she is sp- more specific than just the fascism of ja- of Japan during the war she seems to me almost be the disappointment of defeat specifically because what we are told is that the aunt's fiance goes off the fight in the big war long ago, Mm. and he doesn't come back, and she's just left alone in this house, just ageing and ageing and fading and fading and going mad. And what I think we see here is, in a way, is kind of like a reckoning specifically with not only the... um, the disappointment of having invested so much as Japan did in this war, in this total war, uh, not only the disappointment of defeat and it being like an overwhelming defeat in the end, so like the realization that um, with the detonation of the atomic weapons, that there is no scenario where Japan can even have a conditional surrender now. But this is a is a humiliating and complete defeat. In fact, famously the. Um, The first time that the common people of Japan ever heard the Emperor address them, literally ever heard his voice in any sense, was in a broadcast called uh, the Jeweled... I think it's the Jeweled Mouth or the Jeweled Throat broadcast, Mm -hmm. which is like the famously street, like oddly, um, very ambiguous, very kind of like oddly hyperbolic um, admittance of surrender... Uh, or rather, sort of, like, not the official instrument to surrender to the Allies, but telling the people that things are over now. But be, but doing so in such a convoluted and indirect way, with the infamous phrase, the war has progressed in a direction which is not necessarily to Japan's advantage, that most people were left baffled by what any of this actually meant. This, this was how significant an event this was. That this is everything. The universe has shattered almost. Hmm. Uh, and I think what she is is she embodies this sense of just a complete collapse of what was meant to happen and a complete sense of sort of falling back inwards disappointment and i think and this is where it gets kind of meta almost i think what we also see in this is the circumstances which allow a fascism to take root in the first place because uh i don't know i don't know that much about japanese history in the early 20th century but the origins of japanese fascism i believe at least don't take kind of don't follow like the same course that um european fascism did i uh, where i where um especially in germany obviously where it's the sense of betrayal and the necessity of a revival of a of the nation coming to its senses and realizing that the true victory—the victory over the uh, over the Allies in the First World War—was something that Germany deserved and was gonna get, but was be- but a betrayal occurred in you know, the the stab in the back myth, and so I think what we kind of strangely have. In this, uh, this woman and her romantic and erotic disappointment then is we almost have we we have that same kind of ferment almost and i think it's um because one of the foundational myths of you of the european fascisms of uh in uh, in italy and germany was the necessity for a uh, a palingenesis as i forget the name of the scholar but a scholar of fascism coined that term very helpfully which means to be born again, uh, the necessity for the nation to be reborn. And what this requires in the fascist mindset is violence, heroism, masculinity. And fascism is also very obsessed with sex and with a kind and has uh, a certain erotic sensibility almost or has a fac- or has a, an extremely restrictive sense of the erotic obviously so like no toleration for any deviation or any sense of queerness within that but at the same time definitely the sense of sort of like the, like the need to marshal erotic energy almost as if like reich was right about all going it's a it's a commodity it's a, it's a resource that needs to be energized and gathered and directed in uh, in a particular set in a particular way and i think what we see in this film is the ghost of Jap- of the failure of Japanese fascism kind of re-embodying re- itself because she gets younger as the film goes as she, via way of the house as such, eats virgin girls and kind of from there from them and like from their life is able to re-embody herself.
0: Yeah, the kind of vitality is being sapped. And and so,
1: and I think kind of like, because like, I want to be very clear, I'm not not saying that's like, uh, this is a kind of pro-fascist movie. I think it's, I think it's very anti-fascist. And I think that's what we kind of have like revealed here is what fascism is, is it's kind of like, it's born out of a sense of impotence, both sort of like on a collective national level, and on a more personal, especially, and it's interesting as a woman, and I don't really feel qualified to discuss this, not not being a woman myself, but um, because it is typically sort of like more understood in terms of perhaps male anxieties, uh, straight male, straight cis male anxieties about sex and sexual competition. Uh, I think it's, and I think what we see here is a kind of sort of like a lay, uh, is a laying bare of that, uh, of the fact that where fascism comes from is kind of, is, in the broad sense, not getting it up its a kind of sense of disapp- and a sense of disappointment and humiliation that comes from this. And it's very interesting to note, as a lot of scholars of modern fascism have done, that the insult that the alt-right and the neo-Nazis and the fascists use a lot is cuck uh about in today's parlance derived from cuckold as an insult they use against um both conservative elements which they don't believe have have become sufficiently radicalized and to sort of like race traitors like leftists cuck as in cuckold as in if you're not a nazi you desire the cuckoldry of your own race Mm. and it's fascinating that that same kind of anxiety about and again a specifically a heterosexual cis man anxiety about where's my sex coming from is something that's so intertwined with the fascist mindset.
0: And that's also something very, very potent as well. The fact that um, they're saying cuck and not cuckold. So they're not using the ancient kind of you know thing dating back to old or at least middle English, the term which is just generally applied to... Uh, somebody who's um, being cheated on by their wife, um, but no, they're applying. They're applying it to the well, you know, the that kind of um, abbreviation is one that the people who brought it into modern parlance would have learned from pornography because it is a very specific and very very popular uh, kink, and it's a very you know, which has a very specific, it's um, very very specific section on Pornhub, one might say, <laughs> um, which is. Um, Porn surrounding, um, it will usually follow the pattern where uh, a guy will be having sex with a lady and then the lady's partner comes in and they've been cucked. And so it's interesting that they're formulating these kind of fascistic ideations while watching porn that has, you know, that has that implication there. Um, Also, it's the case that. Uh, there is also a very very profound racial dimension to it because very often in these films it will be a black man sleeping with a white woman and then the woman's white husband will come back in Mm -hmm. uh and they will um be humiliated not just by the sexual act but by the kind of the very very dubious idea that um they're being profoundly outmanned by this uh well endowed black guy that has a significantly higher sexual potency than they do because they're a milk blooded European. Mm. And um, from thence, you know, it's from thence the fascism arises. Um, yeah. this
1: is something that um it's um, like just to just to mention of handy so like the like if you want some of the scholarships of like I also sure, okay I'm not to say the scholarship but some of the theor- like some of the theoretical like grounding on this like uh, Deleuze and Guattari talk about like the libidinal nature of fascism in uh anti oedipus and drawing from Wilhelm Reich's classic book um oh god i have forgotten what it's called the classic book by Wilhelm Reich about this which um, i have
0: which i busting
1: Cloudbusting, <laughs> oh my
0: god well, Cloudbusting, am I I've right? I've been
1: cut by my own memory, dear god uh, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, there we go Which was the first study to actually, to apply this kind of um, methodology to the origin of fascism, fascism And was written in 1933, very interestingly It's a book I really do need to read one day mm. um, But it is, yeah, but it is... Um, I forget where I was going with this, but eroticism at <laughs> the, the film house yes, there we go and uh, but like as a final point the about the about the um the relationship between sexual anxiety and fascism is like the way that and um, the fascist understands the other whether the other be um bla- uh, whether the other be black or jewish there's always this kind of like this um interplay between the notion of um that they have, but they have a more violent sexuality than the fascists themselves. Uh, one that ha- so it has a higher kind of, so it might have a certain higher kind of like potency in a certain sense, but it's necessarily either violent. This is the stereotypes that we see, for example, played out in W.D. Griffith's film, uh, the idea of the black man as being uh predatory and barbarous in his sexuality, or in um, the uh, Nazi stereotype. Of Jewish pe- of a uh, Jewish man as having a degenerate kind of sexuality or like a a, a perverse cre- a creepiness more than a, uh, a, a more than an aggressiveness. It's always and it's like so. This is what we mean by the uh, going back to what we were saying about how although the fascist has to like try to exemplify virility and positive erotic energy, it has to do so whilst also demonising as alien and other and foreign and dangerous any. Any notion of sexuality it understands as being alternative to that. So that's why, you know, for the the Nazis, um, the origin of, you know, sort of like the great play of sex that happens in sort of like in the famously in Berlin in uh, the Weimar Republic that's part of the Jewish plot to undermine us as a nation and that's the same kind of stuff there's the same stuff that's trouted out by modern neo-fascists like the idea that you know the absurd notion that there wouldn't be any trans people if not for the Frankfurt school and and, and, and so on hmm.
0: But I think it's interesting, just generally bringing up the um, the the present, you know, the libido of this film. <laughs> this um, there, there is an extremely sexual dimension to this film that an- I hadn't really even thought about, but is becoming strikingly apparent to me now. It's interesting as yeah. well
1: that the point, like like we said in the, syn- in the synopsis, that thought that leads the gorgeous, like changing her plan to go into her aunt's house. Is um, if we want to get proper, proper, like old school Freudian about it. Oh God, yeah, is the, no, let's... is the arrival of another feminine presence in her father's life, who, if like reading this from a from a classic Freudian or perhaps kind of sort of like, post Freudian or like classically psychoanalytic way of thinking about it, this she then becomes a threat to her. Um, to her kind of sort of like as sort of her sublimated sexual relationship that she has with her widowed father, both because she becomes a she's the feminine presence who can satisfy her father's needs more completely than she ever could because there's this because there's of the sexual potential of the marriage bed, which she doesn't have with her father both being her father's daughter. Um gets really fucked up remembering that love this came from the director's own daughter. Maybe uh, she
0: just didn't like her Mother-in-law? But kind of like right, presents- you know, maybe there's, some, maybe there's a... some... Yeah, I mean... Because the... If, um... We can't not... Also, she didn't write the script. There was a, um, I mean, well, if look- we want to square how much influence she had on the film in this instance... Actually, no, we, I don't think we need to do that. I think I think we can... I think we can claw our way back from this strange idea of... There's one final... Speculation.
1: There's one final weird speculation.
0: I'd like well, to I want s- pu- to pull state. it in the Freudian dimension. I think we've still got stuff to cover in this. Yeah, with the um... Because yeah, I actually just sort of like
1: go and back one more time to the fascistic element here. That because, like, the final scene of the film is the step stepmother um, or stepmother-to-be uh, arriving at the house and now the house is kind of like all of its malefic energy is now entirely embodied in gorgeous, or in like this form, which is the semblance of gorgeous, which is kind of like implied. Like the aunt has just so completely consumed the more that she's just wearing her now. Almost Mm -hmm. the final thing we see is the stepmother just smiling as she just dissolves into flames and is burnt away. Yeah, and there's all and and the reason why I'm talking about this, why I'm talking about this from a fascistic point of view, because if if we really want to like try and like ground this as the idea of a sort of like everything in the house is kind of sort of like the disappointment of like the fascism of the 30s and the 40s then what we have is an encounter between the old and the new here in which the new woman the new modern sexually liberated woman who is pursuing a, a widowed man who already has a kid and so on and so on and so on we have that encounter with all of the malefic energy of the fascist past just burning her away at last mm. uh and again sort of like you know obviously the profound misogyny of fascism has to be considered here so like you know there's something you know because um although they were you know, fasc- you know fascists today refer to their enemies as cocks then they also absolutely despise the women who they understand and perceive to be the ones who have assisted in uh the cuckoldry of the race who have who have engaged in race treachery
0: mm. but yeah i think it's
1: so like the despi- yeah. the, so obviously so yes so despising the modern woman for not maintaining her sense of loyalty almost for not waiting to sort of like not having like she should uh, not waiting for the great manual almost mm.
0: um yes and i kind of want to come back to that point actually particularly possibly before we start talking about the more kind of directly stylistic elements of this film but but just thinking in terms of um well you yeah, know the, the freudian reading of it um the sexualized freudian reading of it um what we're seeing is a number of effective incest taboos happening even before we get to the aunt who is literally a related figure we get a uh, a kind of mother analog coming in and so she's she's brought into this relationship that she's had with her dad and it's interesting how like she won't accept her as the mother and What's interesting is the when the when the other woman first shows up, I really should' have remembered her name, but um, but she's not you know she's presented as this image of perfect idealized purity, um which i guess I guess doesn't really isn't really sexual, but then is being i don't know I, I'm not sure where we can place her in this, but um uh, the fact that she's kind of resenting of this and flees it. Into the arms of her extremely malevolent aunt is very interesting because, yeah, as as you say, there is something intensely sexual about um, about uh, the way you know
1: her name is Ryoko, Ryoko. Right, Ryoko Emma,
0: right, right, uh, and about the way that the aunt effectively kind of dispatches all the girls in what is very often a very kind of sexualized manner, in that she she's almost very kind of flirtatious with them a lot of the time um, because I guess. Because she's seen as this harmless old lady uh, who's also a kind of carer figure or having a reciprocal relationship of care where she's the host and they're looking after her. Um, That becomes very, very unsettling just from the pure extent that even though she's getting younger throughout the film, from the very outset when you first see her, it is clearly a much younger woman. Yes. Um, Made up up as an old woman. And there's something inherently creepy about that because... Especially when we bring in a sexual element because it's duplicitous, because it is feigning a form of kind of asexuality when really she's kind of arranging this very, very sadomasochistic relationship with the girls. She's having them serve her. Uh, she's sort of, uh, I guess, this, you know, I think if, if we wanted to draw a comparison to a figure from history or folklore, um, the, the closest would be Countess Bathory bathing Mm. in the blood of virgins and the extremely potent sexual overtones uh, and taboo-breaking concepts that surround that. Um, And just, you know, the fact that there's the kind of, um, there's the cannibalism of Mac uh, that has, you know, has something extremely sexual in it. There's, you know, that... Matt's Even, character, by the way, she's is... She's the fat one. She's the
1: fat one. She's the one that eats food.
0: Yeah, it's short for stomach. <laughs> they make clear at one point. I thought it was short for McDonald's for a while. Uh, I don't know kind how of, I thought that, but I didn't... That know. makes sense. Really. Mm. Uh, but in any se- in any case, um, so yeah, she's the one that she gets taken down into a well, turned, her head is taken off, and then she's transformed into a pineapple, and then they sit around eating... I thought it was a pi- watermelon. Shit, it's a watermelon. Yeah, I'm, getting my, <laughs> I'm forgetting my fruits here. The guy also gets turned into bananas at one point. That's that's too on the nose um but um i don't know even if you're not going proper um that guy in germany there is something (laughs) profoundly erotic about cannibalism um this idea of like the intense personal connection with someone giving themselves bodily over entirely to someone or having that uh ripped from them um so there's that there's also you know the the sucking of the blood the fact that I mean, I was talking about Cantor's Bathory, the fact that um, we see the last of the girls to die is Prof, and she is not only drowned in a big vat of blood, um, so like joining, uh, giving her body to the vat of blood in a way that re- replicates the um, the Bathory ritual, but also when she's swimming, unable to surface, her kind of professor's go- gown is ripped away from her, and she's swimming naked in the in the blood fountain, and that's kind of quite interesting <laughs> with we should really like yeah so we've got so we've got cannibal fetishism we've got blood play we've got <laughs> um we've got effective incest although it's important to remember if we're thinking about the killings as being inherently erotic the aunt doesn't kill her daughter or her, her niece no um, she just um, so sort of she, like
1: becomes her yeah
0: so she's sidelines role playing she yeah she sidelines that but also is um i guess create Embody- enacting the greatest kind of violation of just completely possessing someone's body or perhaps the house is doing that um and also you know there's that kind of um again i think there is you know there's a certain kind of uh, fetishistic quality to um to the well I was, I was talking earlier the kind of the predatory older woman or masquerading younger woman there's something very profound about that um but actually there are two things i wanted to bring up in relation to what I was talking about in the last interview episode, this has been a very meandering thing, but basically, yeah, the the, the house is profoundly erotic. I think we should just make that, just put that down, put that to rest, resume it later. But um, I just wanted to make a brief equivalence. You know, in the Gabriel Getman interview, um, I was talking about Troll 2. I think a very distinct kind of crossover can be identified between the witch figure in Troll 2, who is clearly a younger woman playing an older woman who then gets made young via cannibalism again. Uh, that's still more or less the same thing we see here. Um, and again, there is something profoundly not just erotic, but also um, sadomasochistic about the present- presentation of the witch character, the fact that she's seducing and destroying these young men. We quite like Troll too. yeah. The, the witch woman has like um, enormous top energy um I think it should just be made clear um but I think the other thing that i was I wanted to bring up I actually wanted to bring up this up later but I think it's pertinent now that well I think actually you now drawing back to a point that I was originally gonna make as a counter to um the the idea of like fascism and the legacy of World War two and how that comes into this um one of the things I think is um a more generalised current in this, which again connects to the persona of the older lady, is the fact that as well as having this um, kind of unconscious po- kind of like, you know fascist energy um, or you know potential for um, for kind of wayward uh, libidinal nationalism that Sean described, uh, there's also just a more general sense of cultural dislocation uh, that come or you know, cultural um, cultural. Cognitive dissonance and cultural separation between generations That is very a, a very powerful force in this film Which I was talking about a bit earlier um, But I think it can be more generally thought of Not in terms of a act of cruelty But a just vast presence of collective trauma um, One of the things that I think uh, was a sentiment uh, Evoked by uh, the director in talking about this film at one point Was this sense that that the explosion of Nagasaki and the horrors that were experienced in World War Two can only have been experienced by people who were there to see them and so no younger generation can possibly um could possibly understand or comprehend the the extent and the scale of these horrors Um, it
1: reminds me of the um the dislocation like the disconnection between the um survivors of the Holocaust and the uh well just everyone else Yeah, but but there's an impossibility of of comprehending a trauma Mm. like that.
0: Um, But there's this, and also like the wider trauma, you were talking about kind of the the shock of defeat. Um, One of the interesting things you've got to think about in terms of like um, understanding that defeat is the fact that for pretty, you know, for many, many Japanese people, this felt like a war of annihilation um, that there was a, you know, it was put out, it was hammered home in propaganda so much that it was just common knowledge that you wouldn't be taken prisoner by the Americans. They would kill you. Um, this is a war of extermination and it's them against us and they will not stop until um, until everyone's dead. And the Japanese didn't, you No, know, the Americans didn't help this by literally having that exact phrase in some of their own Japanese, in some of their own anti-Japanese propaganda. But it was kind of, there was that sense of, um, yeah, sense it was a very, very racialized conflict uh, in a way that we don't really think about in the same way when we talk about what well, we can't think about when we talk about uh, the world, uh, the Second World War in Europe. But it was, yeah, that I just wanted to say that it was the end of World War Two felt like an apocalypse scenario. And so that disconnection comes from the fact that we are experiencing year zero. Uh, you wanted to add something to this.
1: Oh, I just wanted to uh, say a quote from the, uh, the dual voice broadcast. Yeah. Um, just on that note. um I'll just read it here, um, where at one point they say ''Moreover, the enemy has begun to employ a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage is indeed incalculable, taking the toll of many innocent lives. Should we continue to fight?'' Not only would it result in an ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but also it would lead to the total extinction of human civilization. So what we have there is almost like the inversion of that, where uh, where in the instead of like if we if we lose that is our annihilation, the invert like the inverse becomes true. If we continue, we will be annihilated and everyone else with us. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So, so is, yeah, there is a war that. Um, The legacy of something like that can't be anything less than apocalyptic for a culture
0: yeah and i think where i would differ from or where i would see um the presence of that differing from the um the interpretation that you gave was is the fact that this isn't like an active force or something that can be read as an active force it's just the sheer scale of it is almost like an unthinking uh implacable presence that can only that can only destroy By its very magnitude. Um, This is like what I was saying with um, that inability, that cognitive dissonance, the inability to understand what came before or what happened and how that can, um, how that experience can affect you. Um, There's this sense that the dissonance result inherently resulted in hostility. Um, And that kind of that sense of intergenerational conflict is something that has um, been prominent in Japanese Uh, in Japanese culture and especially in Japanese horror for decades following that, and that's, you know, we see perhaps its most extreme realisation in the film Battle Royale where um, the Japanese state becomes so paranoid about um, the prospect of its own rebellious youth that it organises public blood blood sport uh, spectacles uh, designed to cull um, entire schools' worth of children by pitting them against each other in order to uh, suppress uh the potential for an uh uh, su- pute- uh suppress the potential for some like massive social upheaval it's the same kind in a strange
1: way it's the same kind of sensibility that leads to the cultural revolution in china the against sort of the the um, uh potential of the generational disconnect uh, yeah, the generation growing up who never knew the uh, the Japanese occupation or the uh wars or the revolution and so on having then male them, they must have their own revolt. In order to militarize them, so to militarize their spirits, and you know, we were disastrous results sort of following.
0: Mm. Um, but I think where this connects to the film is um, something. Well, bring, coming back to this idea of a folkloric reading, uh, so the fact that um, these are this is effectively a folk horror film because it's drawing on uh, Japanese folk legends surrounding ghosts and vengeful spirits. Um, One of the things that comes up is, well, one of the most uh, central genres of that is called the uh, Kaidan genre, which means which uh, centers around the principle of the wronged woman. So a woman um, who is uh, killed under some sort of uh, dubious circumstances coming back to have like revenge, not just on those who wronged her, but it becomes something of a directionless revenge that they just become a vengeful spirit. Who will wreak vengeance on anyone that is alive, uh, even if they had no connection to the crimes that were perpetrated against this woman? And by shit, by the kind of like strange, implacable forces of the universe are empowered to inflict retribution on the innocents. Um, and that's essentially what we're seeing in um, what we're seeing in House. Um, Partic- well, particularly because, like, it's some- it is a wronged woman, a-, a woman who has suffered greatly, but she's been so corrupted by these experiences that she can only act in a sadistic and destructive fashion towards um, people who don't understand her suffering. Um, and it's very interesting that, getting back to what I was saying about thinking about folkloric themes uh, in the massive kind of cultural reckoning with a military defeat how um how kind of obayashi has fused these two elements. He's made this very, very contemporary story of generational division into something um timelessly Japanese and, and ancient. And I just I just think that's extremely profound. And the new thing under the sun. <laughs> yeah. And well no, I mean it's just it's very curious. And also this is something again that came up with um my interview with Gabriel Getman, which I'm now extremely pleased we timed so well with this With this as the <laughs> follow-up episode. Um, one of the things that came up in his film uh, Cecilia, which is based on a Japanese folk legend, is this idea that um, these there are these demonic entities that um, are, destroy the life of a young girl, but they don't do it out of a conscious malice. They do it because they're this implacable universal force that can only destroy. Uh, and We've ascent, even though we have the trappings of good and evil, we've effectively done away with um, these concepts in favor of just a a kind of cruel, chaotic universe principle.
1: Yes, it's almost again a sheer libidinal energy, a sheer a sheer uh, like a sheer force. I mean, in a sense, I mean, this is why I think this is why there's something attracted almost, by the idea of the of Reich's idea of Orga, and the idea of this kind of because it isn't entirely identifiable just with the sexual instinct the idea is sort of like this is the vital force itself this is the the force that can create and destroy that brings together and pulls apart the idea that there is actually beneath our understanding of it there is just a sheer a sheerness to it a sheer um presence of it that um can't that isn't reducible to anything further than itself
2: oh. it's <laughs> I don't think I'll
0: Lot about how this is a profoundly strange and unsettling film but I think it is worth um, pointing out that as as well as um, the content being very strange um, and having a lot of extremely potent subtext to it that we I feel we've perhaps only scratched the surface of um, we should also bring up the fact that this is style you know there's a there's an intense, um, distinctive, kind of stylistic quality that acts to uh, complement the um, the weirdness of the plot. I mean, I guess, actually, one of the things that I think is perhaps most interesting to think about um, is the fact that this came out in the same year as Suspiria. And these, these films feel almost like kind of tw- twins separated at birth. They're <laughs> about kind of groups of girls going off to... Uh, a remote location um, being gathered together in very kind of close um, confines, uh, ruled over by a strange malevolent presence. Uh, and this being complemented by a psychedelic nightmare scape of um, of intense kind of unreality and dodgy special effects and and the living dead and gross shit. Um, and, you know, what, like, what are we seeing here? We're seeing strange stuff of colour, we're seeing uh, strange images. There's an intense kind of artificiality to it.
1: Yeah, it is worth it is worth meditate, pausing and meditating on just how weird everything we see in this film is. And to be perfectly honest, um, when Luce suggested we do this and I watched it, I was kind of like pushing that maybe we shouldn't because I just didn't re. It was such such a strange hour and a half of my life I just very much struggled to think like what I could possibly say about this movie because it's such a it's such a, a visual film it's just, it feels <laughs> almost like a like a redundant thing to say about well, a movie but we struggled but
0: with the same thing with Nick Rogue the first time round we did but uh I think between <laughs> I think of... you said the exact same thing but <laughs> <with laughs> the exact same oh. fucking apropos of nothing <laughs> <poetic>. <laughs> Um, so it's worth, mate, so I want to talk, so
1: I'm just going to list, I'm just going to list some of the weird freaking shit we see here. We have, like, the movie opens with the words, a movie. There, there's this, I mean, we've already mentioned some of the, uh, like, the horrible violence that occurs in this. And it's, and the way that this occurs is in a profoundly unreal, dreamlike, psychedelic, knowingly, anti-realist absurd way there's a beautiful wonderful moment where one of the the girl ever gets eaten alive by a piano where her head just like floats around her own kind of like, disem- like dismembered melody. melted limbs <laughs> and she just giggles and goes ha how naughty I this... think
0: it's because like kind of parts of her body are being displayed like Oh because there's yeah. no, there's yeah. nudity, yeah. Yeah and it's um it's being displayed naked but also cut up naked. And there's also yeah, it's um but yeah, and there's also
1: this um there's a moment that occurs which um Initially, so what I thought we saw was um, when the girls get off the bus on the way to the countryside was a, I, th- I thought what we saw was them standing sort of like against the beautiful landscape and it pulls back and you see that they're actually standing against a billboard and then behind it is in fact the identical image on the billboard but as now a natural landscape. This isn't actually quite what happens there, and I rewatched this just it to like check. A green fit. screen or something? No, it's like it's not. It's, it's more that it's not what it actually happens. They get it's like they get off the bus, and it cuts immediately to this big wide shot of them against the mountains and the clouds. Then it zooms right in. There's or rather it cuts to them standing obviously against a billboard which has an almost exact like smaller scale vision of this with clouds in the same positions as in the real sky. Cloud, clouds that look a bit like mushroom clouds occasionally. Yeah, now yeah. you've said it, I can't not think about it. As the fact as well that all the characters have, like, these incredibly descriptive archetypal names, like Prof and Gorgeous and Fantasy and, and so on. Um, but what... To, to kind of, like... It's impossible to emphasise just how consistently, consistently anti-realist. Everything that happens in this film is there is not a single moment that has any kind of potential of any naturalism or any realism. It is a cacophony of cuts and edits and swipes and zooms of flashes of colour and special effects of from a completely, completely kind of sort of like aesthetically incoherent way of, like, um, animation and uh, a, 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 and just, like, practical effects and in-camera effects and just, like, things they scratch physically onto the film. Just all of this exploding at the same time. It's very difficult to emphasise just how confusing, just on the eye, what we see in this film even is. It, there's these strange, generic shifts throughout. Like, it's, like, it starts off, like, kind of cutesy teen drama. Then there's this like bizarre, bizarre slapstick moment of their teacher falling over, getting his ass stuck in a bucket and then a stop motion thing of him falling down some stairs and then like just him with his ass stuck in the bucket just like sliding down the street. It's, it's these, mo- like, and whenever he appears on the screen, no matter how like horrible and violent and disturbing what we've just had, it would just be a cut to him doing some stupid slapstick, like eating his noodles in a really silly way or something. Uh,
0: yeah, at the, re- at the weird kind of like um, motorway noodle bar where there's a bear as one of the clientele. <laughs> It's a big model bear eating noodles. I th- I don't I don't know if it actually eats noodles, but it's definitely there. I think it, it might actually be helping cook.
1: <laughs> it's a is a confusing film, but I, it? I guess it, um, it
0: kind of it it um was it in the episode on Lost Highway we were talking about with uh, Philip Snow we were saying about like the anti-realism of date that David Lynch actively employs in um in Twin Peaks season three the fact that he draws so much attention to the artificiality of the special effects we get. Um, people literally just disappearing off-screen when they're, you know, bursting into um, burst, bursting into another form, which I won't disclose for plot-spoiler uh, reasons, but... Oh, I,
1: I know what you mean and yeah. it terrified me.
0: But also, you know, they do draw a lot of attention to the fact that you are watching a film beyond that bit where it's open saying it's a movie. Well, indeed, like... that's ha- that
1: kind of sets everything else yeah. up, I think. Because um, this always,
0: is... Like, the, the, the fact that um, the... The the gorgeous's dad is a film music, or is, he composes the scores for. Yeah, he's films. just like
1: he just come back from. I think it's from Norway or something. No, he's something. from yeah. Italy
0: because he oh, talks but, yeah. about having some. No, his producer or someone says that he was uh, the best person to work with since um, since uh, Ennio Morricone. Uh, it's like yeah, wow, well, <laughs> which I which is amazing. But um, but also there's that point where um, the girls have been like the house has gone into kind of 13 ghost style lockdown uh or is it no house on it's not house No, it's on 13 ghosts no, th- yeah. it's both
1: and i think trying, it's more 13 ghosts and they're but.
0: trying to figure out how they'll get out based on what type of film they're in and it's like oh if it's a kung fu movie then the character kung fu can just kick down the door she can kung fu her way out of here. and then it turns out that's not the case <laughs> um but also just as well as that some of the some of the bizarre stuff like I think it's consciously um, dreamlike. Um, like the fact that it's, it's drawing on this idea that um, dreams, that the human mind constructs dreams out of uh, fragmented bits of information that it pulls together to form a coherent plot or to form some semblance of coherency. But if you step back and analyse it, it's, co- it's things like, okay, this person is dying because the way they are being depicted is a drawing of that person being torn up um that you know i I mean i mean you may not necessarily dreamt that but you know that is that is the logic it can often work on um and the same with the kind of being able to shape the direction the dream goes by deciding what type of dream it is and shaping the reality like that i think that comes into it very strongly um but and also the cat we've got to talk about the cat gorgeous gorgeous cat the cat that is like it merges with pictures of itself the whole time and has apparently been alive since the 1940s and not aged with its owner. Oh, um, such a good cat. Oh, I love that cat. And the cat, the fucking, I just love the fact that the cat goes all the way to the town where they're living to kind of draw them back and they just don't think that much of it. <laughs> Although they're surprised it can close doors but they travel <laughs> many distances and understand human language. Um, and then it's like, oh, and it knew which train to get. Um but again it's it's fucking crazy. But also um <laughs> a constant, weird. constant anthropomorphization. Everything is alive. Um there's things like um that, well there's things like, you know, um when they talk about the cooker, the cooker starts moving up and down. When uh, they're at the watermelon stall, um one of the watermelons starts talking uh, or starts moving, there's the skeleton in the background, there's the, they communicate with the with the chandelier. The woman talks to the chandelier and it comes on. And then that turns out to be one of the many malevolent forces there and it starts dropping bits of glass on them, which Kung Fu manages to just kick away, which is I, I thought oh, she's
1: kick-ass. She's yeah. Kung Fu.
0: Yeah, and also, actually, one thing I didn't mention, which I'm just going to bring up as a brief aside, the, the, the weird eroticization of it, the fact that Kung Fu loses her skirt in a, in one of those kind of, like, comical anime fan service ways that's played for laughs but is is clearly like, oh now she's in her pants for the rest of the film mm. things. Um yeah, that that's another thing I forgot, which is striking, and she just like continues as normal. Even though she's clearly picked up her skirt after kicking it off during one of the fight scenes, she just doesn't bother putting it back on. Yeah.
1: Um
0: it's weird. And but the thing is that, that kind of like imbuing um that imbuing of the um the like minds or agency into um, different objects is again, I think, something that comes up in other Japanese folkloric traditions. This is just this is an aside, um, but it's again, I was talking about the uh, the Kasa Obake umbrella demon. Uh, this is another example of that. Um, when we were talk, when we were actually planning this episode and we were both going through our notes separately, I remember you mentioning Deleuze and um, well, Deleuze, possibly Guattari. Um, and, um, and I, I was wondering whether you were actually going to kind of like bring out some form of like schizoanalysis type reading or, um, or the body without organs or, or some sort of, um, wackadoo re- French, <laughs> th- so. French stuff like that. And even though I'm glad you didn't, uh, because I think that would have been a bit of a stretch, especially because there's other reasons why it could look like this. I think... I think there is a very definite sense of the uncanny in this, but also a definite idea of schizophrenia. The idea of, like, distrib- Well, going right back to Ballard, the exploded consciousness, the um, The, failure to- The limbs that have become
1: detached from any kind of guiding centrality. Yes. Because that's why, like, one of the things that's so memorable, visually memorable to this, is just like- But, like, the scene you just mentioned, where it's just- every, like, component of her body just separated and just, like, slowly rotating as she giggles. Mm-hmm. There's something for fact, profan- like... I mean, because like the word schi- the schizophrenia, where it comes from, right? the, the schiz component... Yeah, it's, means it's cutting. Split, yes, yeah. exactly. To cut, to split, to schism. Sick it.
0: Um, but, yeah, so... So, yeah, that, that is a very, very strong thing in the film, and I think it should be kept in mind, even if you're not going for... Um, The interpretation that this was a direct attempt to portray that kind of analysis on screen, which I don't think it was, but um, But yeah, it's it's very profound, but it's it's in many ways using a form of unreality, a cinematic unreality, which places it in a very interesting cultural context, which again uh, it draws back to the Weimar Republic and, as you were talking about, Bertolt Brecht.
1: Bertolt Brecht, playwright, theorist and communist, yes. real so, soundbite. <laughs> so, I, the reason why I'm bringing Brecht into here is because I believe what actually happens because of the persistent anti-realism of this film is, rever- I don't know if this is intentional or not, but at least, at least unintentionally, I think what we're seeing deployed here are a large number of uh, Brechtian devices. Thank you Lucy. So, by which I mean Brecht developed a form of theatre which he called Epic Theatre, which part and part of the, the idea of which, part of the intention of which, was to create a kind of theatre which wouldn't let you forget you're watching theatre. By which I mean a, a form of theatre whereby you're constantly Reminded of the fact that you are watching a performance, you are watching actors. You are standing in, uh, or standing or sitting in, uh, in a theatre, uh, watching people on a stage. These people are not the people they're portraying. Indeed, they are portraying people. And the reason why Brecht was doing this was for political purposes, because his plays, which are very political and very sort of like, um, it's like Im- imbued with his, uh, with his, um, communism. Are, are. were kind. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to say exactly. Their, 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 the intention was they were just going to be pure edification of pure propaganda. But what they end up doing because of this is they. The idea was that it, it causes the audience to then call to mind the contradictions and the oppressions that occur in their own lives as are being played out for them, almost. Uh, like on their behalf, almost as as a kind of a as a kind of a, in uh, performative instruction, and like one of and so like for prep for recording this because I realised I've never actually seen the Brecht play or read one of his plays. I read uh, the Caucasian Chalk Circle, which is a wonderful play which you should uh, go and see or read or whatever. And the uh, how he does this with. Uh, this play is it opens with a um, Soviet official kind of like adjudicating a dispute between two uh, collective farms about which one of them has claimed to this particular piece of land and kind of like during their negotiations they decide to sort of like to have a break and a popular local entertainer is brought in who then becomes the narrator for the play that you actually see who then the rest of the what you see is the Caucasian chalk circle um with the with, the, with the, uh, the entertainer, as he's called, acting as the narrator and kind of like the guide and sort of leading the chorus and explaining what's going on. But what you have here is this kind of juxtaposition from the fact that what you are being presented with is something which is knowingly a story being told to you. Um, something knowingly unreal, something anti-real in that regard. The, because there can be, you could argue that... What a lot of cinema and a lot of theatre attempts to do in order to function is it has to be kind of deceitful. It has to kind of try and trick you into forgetting that you are in fact sitting down watching images being displayed on a screen and get you to localise yourself within it. But what you have with a film like House, where you have this constant, constant, just sheer cinematic technique... Going on, all of the time, there's cutting between styles, this cutting between levels of reality almost. You have animation and special effects which were not ever intended to look in any sense realistic going on. You can't help but feel that you're watching a film. You are watching uh, a work of like profoundly competent artifice. And this is why I think the political reading that uh, I offered earlier is kind of, like, one of the reasons I think it's justified. Because, like, if we view this as a Brechtian film, in a sense, and if we understand Brecht's techniques as being attempts to get you to think about, you know, at the actual, like, political realities you exist in, I kind of think that when you force to view this incredibly unreal, mythic thing, it kind of forces you to sort of, like, think about it in terms of, sort of like, well, it, it, to think about it in those terms. And if we do follow through with this and look at it politically, I do think that you see this kind of playing out... Of, like we've already said, like the maybe almost like the erotic core of fascism. Yeah. Yeah. But, although there are other ways that we can think about what's going on here, Um, because, like, one, because because rather than just viewing this film as this exercise in kind of like an anti realist kind of like playing out of fascism. Um, I think what this film also does, and it's important to, to emphasize this is an also, not an instead of, because just a movie, you can mean whatever the hell I say it means. Um, what this also forces us to do, I think, is kind of like we end up kind of falling back onto the question of what the hell even is cinema in the first place? What the hell even is a movie? And this is not a question I can answer in however long it is we have left in this episode. And uh, nor indeed can anyone. But... <laughs> got at least an hour. Least an hour. Um, but I think that we can at least use this as, as an opportunity to try and to, like, think back to first principles about what actually is going on in cinema. So, in his work Cinema One, um, Deleuze kind of kicks off by introducing um, some of the ideas from uh, Henri Bergson. Says, and I'm butchering that name. I do not speak French. Um, and Befson, I try
0: occasionally on this podcast, never outside of this. <laughs> I
1: kind of try occasionally on this podcast, and never outside of it either. So there you go. Um, so, but, but, but what I understand of Berckson, who is someone who I've never been like formally like taught and have never read any of his books at, so I'm just kind of like he's,
0: he's real good.
1: He's re- oh, Thank you. Good. Well, I've really you heard it. Yeah. Uh, but what Bergson like does, according to the those at least, is collect like, um proposed that movement should be considered kind of like independent of object in in terms of philosophical analysis, that rather than movement being just like a quality of objects, like we should understand movement as having its own sense, its own reality almost. And when and what they're And so by which we should understand rather than as it's like played out in Zeno's famous paradoxes of uh, the paradox of the arrow, which is uh, which is put that um, you know, if you fire an arrow at a tree, first of all it has to get halfway that distance, but before then it has to get a quarter of the distance to the tree, and before that an eighth, and before that a sixteenth, and before that a thirty-two, thirty-second. Doesn't matter, but um, in, in, but um, what Beckson kind of like proposes instead of this is rather than understanding movement as just these like these stages of an object kind of like like going by these um, by these points. Rather, movement is just something in and of itself. That I understand it, at least. That's what I understand him to be saying. And curiously, when he's talking about depictions of movement, because he says how movement cannot be or should not be depicted is as a series of stills, because that defeats that defeats it almost. That can't no, that is not movement, because movement is not a series of stills, it is a flow in and of itself. Uh, almost like a certain completion in of itself. So this led to Berkson claiming that cinema cannot truly depict movement. It can only depict an illusory semblance. And Deleuze um resists that. He think and like he, and he says that actually this isn't what happens when we watch a film because he says well we have in cinema when we watch a movie we never see a series of still images we only ever see flux we only ever encounter in the cinema movement we we do because of just the practice of of the realities of what cinema actually is It's that we do not perceive a series of stills we perceive a a, a movement.
0: It's because they because they realise that uh, thirty two frames per second is t- roughly the pace at which the human brain moves. So what we, well, have... you know, the human brain, is able to take in sensory information. So that would probably be a rough approximation of how many kind of if we're thinking in a if we're thinking in terms of like of yeah back and natural forth perception. Perception, natural perception that more or less replicates it.
1: So what Deleuze proposes, therefore, is he suggests that maybe the reason why Bergson. Himself didn't realise this, and, and insisted that the cinema cannot, do, cannot portray movement, but only uh, an illusion of movement. It's because he suggests that in Bergson's own lifetime, cinema had not yet discovered the potential of the anti-real. That cinema was still trying to, trying to be documentary, it's just uh, how we figure out how horses run. Uh, and so what on. What
0: period is he talking about here?
1: Uh Bergson died in forty-one. But yeah, but uh, okay. But Deleuze but Deleuze is proposing, and like Deleuze may be wrong, but this is just his his theorizing okay. about why be- about why Bergson said this, was that cinema hadn't become A significantly mature enough art form for this possibility to become obvious. Mm. And I think kind of what we see with a movie like House therefore, which is frenetic to say nothing else. Mm is like because we have this this sheer pure play of the anti-real um is we almost have a film which can allow itself to just be pure movement almost a film that is kind of that isn't concerned with representation almost
0: i mean this is kind of it's interesting that he should be talking about this in sort of the 30s and 40s because this is also oh, the, so the of... was
1: talking about this in the 70s but um, oh, okay but, but
0: i mean berg sorry i mean yeah but uh,
1: i think but i think Excellent. See, I think Bergson was talk about this in the
0: 20s. Okay, but I mean, like, even in the 1920s, even if they hadn't, by all, you know, by everyone's estimation, reached that point yet, these were at least kind of ideas that people were aware of, this idea of not just um, not just the idea of, like, cinematic regression or whether it's become, it's fully realised itself as an art form, but the uniqueness of cinema. Um, it's what I was talking about with why... Um, why F.W. Murnau became the focus of um, Albin Grau's occult project, because um, cinema has this unique potential to uh, communicate messages entirely um, subverting, you know, entirely uh, surpassing the um, direct cognitive appreciation of what's going on into um, tapping into a subconscious level, because it replicates experience in a way that is almost attuned to uh, these subconscious processes of the mind. And he understood, um, well, he understood Murnau to have a a, a proper appreciation of this. And again, Murnau makes statements about how he's moving towards a form of cinema that um, he perhaps even didn't necessarily understand himself as having reached in his lifetime, but a form of cinema that, just won't depend he didn't anticipate sound but he anticipated cinema without intertitles mm. um, he thought that it would just ultimately be unnecessary because uh the th- theatrical arts of performance and the uh, artificial and photog- photographic arts of um editing and filming uh would achieve something that uh, entirely dispensed with the need for language um and and again that's why i think Grau recognized manau as someone he wanted uh, by his side for his great occult enlightenment of the early 20th century. For
1: the great work which never ac- accomplished
0: anything, really, sadly. Um. Yeah. I mean, one killer fucking film. Oh, Asferatu. yeah, Chin-chin. Chin-chin. Um, but the other thing I kind of wanted to bring in to the fact, which um, even if um, it would be too much of a stretch to say that the Obayashi was aware of Bertrand and Deleuze, although that's not necessarily to say that he wasn't, um, or at least wasn't trying to do this in this film, is the fact that there is a particular scene in the film where it, I think it's the the bit where the girls realise they're kind of fucked, which is um, they're trying to call outside for help and they're trying the phone. And while that's happening, they're unable to contact the outside, but time appears to be breaking down. And what we're seeing is a staggering of the image. We see the um, the motion, you know, that it's not, we've seen kind of like stop motion stuff throughout the film, but this is where, They've clearly just gone through and cut out every second or third frame. Uh, so you're seeing it as a really jarring, unpleasant, uh, dizzying series of like disconnected stills, not quite conveying movement, but de- depicting what the girls are doing during this time. In the, way, and...
1: in, in the way, then, this kind of goes past the vision of cinema as pure movement and kind of like cuts down even deeper into you know the sheer materiality of cinema.
0: Mm but also but in this context it's used to demonstrate the fact that they have left reality in this house and they've left time and been sealed somewhere outside of time hence why they can't communicate with the outside world via the phone because they're trying to call into another age and that's not how sound works sound sound depends on a linear progression of time and mati- and matter that they've now left <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah go abayashi
1: yeah go abayashi so one uh final theorist uh, that i kind of want to bring in and, and actually theorist is perhaps a little bit of a misnomer because he's just more a kind of like chaos presence
0: predominantly a Playwright, no? B-
1: predominantly a playwright, but his
0: play, his plays were a kind of theoretical experiment in many cases. We are of course talking about
1: Antonin R. Two, or possibly Antonin R. Two. Uh, so R. Two was a um, oh God, he was kind of he was a he was a very strange man. He was a very strange man. He ha- and he's cast quite a long, quite an interesting uh, theoretical shadow. Like he. Uh, is used by Deleuze and Guattari in their kind of like they're working out the concept of the body without organs. I you think he actually originated that specific image in his work? Because during the course of his mental illness, which I don't know if this was strictly speaking schizophrenia in the modern sense we'd understand it, but it was understood by Deleuze and Guattari to be schizophrenia, he went through a psychosis of of like where he perceived himself as not as a thing that didn't have any kind of distinctions or divisions, but just kind of like a, a thing of just a pure sameness, which is you know, the notion of the body of organs as this kind of like the absolute substrate upon which there are, fi- there are the fields of force and attraction and repulsion, but not a sense of differentiation in and of itself.
0: I feel we should also bring up the fact that um, Bauhaus, the fucking classic golf band, bring him up a lot in the lyrics, um, possibly only exceeded by the amount they bring up Maldoror. Mm. So the reason I'm bringing
1: in R2 is because um, R2 wanted to create a kind of a new kind of theatre, a theatre that wouldn't had a kind of a, uh, a magical, um, ritualistic, orgiastic element to it. And to be very clear, R2 isn't someone I can claim to understand very well. He's not someone uh, I... I got sick for a couple of weeks, and like the month before recording this, so I didn't get as much reading done as I wanted to. But what I understand of, well. thank you. What I understand of R two is that this is the kind. Of, this is what he wanted to achieve. He wanted to achieve a, a radically new kind of theatre, which would not rely on representation. It was a theatre which was a bringing together of uh, both of like the player and the spectator. I mean, he is of...
0: almost uh, echoing um, what I was talking about with Murnau in that context. In a sense, yeah. Murnau who didn't, was actually kind of working around roughly at the same time, so it's a fairly strong case that um, it was, um, R2 had more influence on that. In one of his. Um, Krakauer doesn't talk about that so much, but. You know. In
1: fact, in one of R2's essays collected in uh, the book The Theatre of Cruelty, um, there's this bizarre, bizarre, kind of like, rambling, strange essay. He's talking about the plague, which, and like, this is, you know, the plague, the Black Death, where he, which he understands, or. or interpreted for some reason as psychical, as being a, uh, as a psychic phenomenon that that takes roots and is transmitted psychically rather than uh, physically. And he kind of like, because like he focused, like he has these bizarre things where he's talking about how sort of like, uh, like how the, like the lesions and the ruptures that occur in the body was infected with the plague, but while... Occurs in states of excitation. The brain in the last stages of plague, the brain dissolves into carbonated powders, and this is because it's sort of like the psychic energy is consuming itself at last. And this is why Artu was not a doctor. Artu was not a doctor. He was not a clinician. And this is like how he tries to explain the fact that sort of like in like the stories that we get from like the cities where the plague hits, like in its last stages, just everybody fucking. And the reason everybody fucking is because, like, everyone says, well, we're probably going to die soon, aren't we? Yeah, but, but for R2, this is like, again, it's kind of almost organic. It's just sort of like this shit energy is just infesting everybody now. And it's kind of dissolving our brains as it does so. And um, and then, uh, then he makes this leap and he says... And in many ways, is this not much like the theatre? Sure. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that he wants. He wanted a kind of theatre that would kind of... Uh, which is basically a Warhammer 40,000 chaos psychic death play that make everybody horny. Which um, literally
0: happens in the Fulgrim novel. Really? Yeah, no, like... Because um, the, the, the Emperor's Children flagship has a theatre, which I think is actually called... Um, Wait. Th-
1: Holy shit, is no, it called wait, the, the, the Theatre of Cruelty? No,
0: no, it's not called the Theatre of Cruelty. I think it's called the... um. Wait. We Theatre have to know. Emperor's um, Children <laughs> Fulgrim. Because it is named after... It is something in French. I think it's La Fenice, which I think just means the Venetian, but, but it is clearly that. And there's like... I think the Fulgrim novel ends with... Um, I think it is definitely... Um, wait. Yeah, I Emperor- have it. It's
1: La Fenice is... An
0: opera house in Venice, yes, yeah. meaning the phoenix, yeah. Oh, gee, oh my god, because he's the phoenix, because it's named after him. But ah. no, I think it's like after the entire, like, um, Emperor's Children and We're support Warhammer staff. We're Warhammer Yeah, so <laughs> Emperor's Children and support staff get completely inf- infected with chaos. Um, down to their very being. One of the concluding scenes is where there's like a incredibly weird, sadistic performance happening in La Fenice, which has been this recurring presence because the Emperor's child, because Fulgrim especially was insistent on having as many of the kind of remembrances, which are the state sponsored artist division, <laughs> there to document the Imperial Crusades. Which a lot of the um, the other legions have literally just kicked out. But he was like, no, bring them all to me. I'm going to have a theatre on my flagship. I'm going to get sculptors around me to like <laughs> give me feedback on my own work and stuff, and it ends with... um... Orgrim
1: finally learning to bottom. I'm so sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Um, But yeah, no, it ends with... It ends with <laughs> <laughs> um this elaborate performance, and then on stage the performance the performers like burst open and they are like zinche and no they' and fucking Slanishi demonettes who are all in kind of fucking eighties goth gear uh, and they're all in like corsets and leather straps and stuff, and that is like the theater of pain and is wonderful.
1: You might be wondering why we're talking about Antonin R2 in this conversation about the Japanese horror movie House, Ugh. and the reason You should is... get to that quote you had written down, that was really good Thank you, uh, so I went, in my research for this, I came across um, a book by Stephen Barber, who's a very interesting scholar uh, who wrote a, if it's the same Stephen Barber I'm thinking of, but I'm assuming it must be wrote an absolutely wonderful kind of like short novella, uh, n- novella poem thing called England's Darkness It's just like one of the most sadly, scarefully, horrifyingly moving things I've ever read. Anyway, um, he wrote a book called um, The Screaming Body which is kind of like his investigations of R2's relationship with other mediums, with other forms of art other than theatre. And R2 had a period of engagement with cinema he was a jobbing actor because you know man got to eat and you know and he had to do something to fund his weird experiments with theater and so on and he did kind and he did manage to get a screenplay made as well which he was very disappointed with the adaptation because he felt it was a two his screenplay was very dreamlike and very strange what was it called? I cannot remember, but I can find out. I will going in out. show that <laughs> We really shouldn't write these things down, <laughs> shouldn't we? Um, but uh, it did end up being made, and he was very disappointed with it, because he felt it was too a too literal adaptation of this kind of dream energy that he was trying to get across. And he ended up con- like moving away from cinema and kind of concluding that it was just a fad, it would never catch on, and so on, and so on, and so on. But... What Barber writes not towards. The time. No, not, not, not at all. It was the same thing with uh, the talkies when they happen mm. as well. But what Barber writes towards the end of the section on cinema is R2 desired a cinema that could confront the fragmentation and the horror of representation that ran throughout his work. The spectator of his proposed cinema is laced at the very extremes of visual experience. Physically exposed to a multiple crisscrossing of expulsive forces, which necessitate a transformation of the conditions and nature of visceral perception and impel a resistance towards society and towards cinema itself.
0: Heel yeah, buddy.
1: I am not proposing that House is an R2D, and I'm going to go with film, Um, because there couldn't be a Artudian film which you could watch more for months in essence. It'd be more something that kind of, like, burns itself up during the process of its own projection, because it, it can't be repeatable. There has to just be this explosive happening, almost. Uh, but I think that, considering how House is just this eruption of non-representational, anti-realists, violently visual chaotic forces of colour and sound and shape and energy just playing out for us in such a way that just repeatedly, constantly just makes you aware you're watching a movie. I think this is something at least close to, the, to R2's vision of a cinema which has kind of like unshackled itself from representation nope. and has yeah. just become uh, a, a play in itself.
0: I would actually go further as to say that even if we, like, categorically can't experience that or can't realise that in the real world, I think we are coming close to a variation on that. And the reason I say this is comes back to the fact that this was written by um, Obayashi's daughter uh, Chigumi. And the fact that, I mean, we've talked a lot about trying to put this in a um, cultural context as well as a theoretical context and how... That, and that's sort of the reason why we've had to be so careful in a lot of our analysis, not to make too much of a stretch or too many assumptions in that capacity. But um, in that bit, you mentioned about how, um, how uh, the... Uh, the, the, the con- how is it? What is it? The to- you talk about um, the experience of cinema as uh, singular and unrepeatable. Um, and for me, what that conveys is a sense of a film or a story almost kind of robbed of um, culture, almost kind of disconnected from uh, a cultural context because it's only experienced once and therefore it becomes something intensely personal. Um, And I think one of the things I found striking about, um, about this film and I think has made it possible for us to think quite expansively around it is because uh, and you know he given our quite limited scholarship on the history of Japan and Japanese <laughs> culture um which is weeks old at this point um, <laughs> but the fact that because it was written by a child gives it um well he, it's it's important actually before I say this but to like uh, to bring up how um, how obiyashi um, squared his understanding of why he chose um, to collaborate with his daughter on this film and he gives He gives this quote that comes up in the documentary Building a House, which I believe is a DVD extra, uh, where he says, um, Adults only think about things they understand. Everything stays on that boring human level, while children can come up with things that can't be explained. Several of Chigumi's ideas which are included in House, uh, such as a reflection in a mirror attacking a viewer, a watermelon being pulled out of a well appearing like a human head, and a house that eats girls, are things that only children can conceive of. Um... And that kind of gives a, a platform to consider this film in an a cultural context because that's channeling the universal weirdness and alienness of the child's mind. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and yeah, and so I think even if um, we can't categorically create something that's so in- so inherently personal to a viewer in this context along the lines that Ar- Arto describes, um, because you know that is impossible. Uh, we can at least kind of present something that occupies or uh, at the very least approaches a similar cognitive space as in um, just what what amounts to an ex- extremely pure and extremely kind of cerebrally vital cinematic experience and I think I think that's if nothing else why it's extremely valid to talk about Artot in this context so kind of going back to um, your reading about Brecht and your reading of Arte. Um, When I first kind of learned that, well, when you first told me that this is kind of the angle you decided to take in understanding this film, which is understandably was a slog for both of us (laughs) in terms of forming a coherent take that we were able to present in a coherent fashion. Um, I was slightly concerned that um, bringing in Brecht and Arte was something of a stretch, partly because because, uh, you were I felt uh, in the initial plane that or well, in the initial um interpretation that the strange anti-realism that can be um that can arise from a Brechtian concept of drama is something that probably gained some equivalency from the fact that um that it was essentially written by a child and that's why it's unreal because children don't have that initial um well, you know, they, there's nothing that's programmed into them that they have to necessarily abide by the rules of cinema as... and logic in these circumstances.
1: Yes, to such as these truly belong the kingdom of God.
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> out of the mouths of babes. Um, but, I don't know, like, going through it, like, approaching it on these terms, I feel that, no, both is right, that this was written by a child, and it is appropriate that we bring in Brecht and Otto. Um The other thing was that... Um, even though we're talking, we're putting this in the context of a um, a Brechtian uh, analysis, and also that idea about childhood. There is a third uh, principle at work in the dramaturgy of House, which is the debt to Kabuki and No, the two kind of great ancient genres or ancient forms of Japanese theatre. Uh, and this, you know, this goes back to what I was talking about the about the kind of. The nationalist quality, and I'm using nationalist in a wider term rather than a, rather than in a necessarily political sense. I'm saying nationalist in in the sense of um, recouping or reclaiming a sense of nationhood in the face of defeat and existential and cognitive crisis, which results very often in the evocation of older traditions. As we saw with the fact that this is this and other films of that period were effectively very potent folk horror films. There is a lot to be said with the debt that um, the film House owes to uh, two uh, prominent traditions in uh, Japanese theatrical history, those being Kabuki and No. And just a bit of background. So No Theatre um, is something, I think it's it's fairly safe to make an equivalency with... Um, perhaps ancient Greek theatre. It is heavily dependent on masks. It uses a heavy degree of stylization. Um, it, use, it has actually a very interesting dynamic um, around the use of masks, uh, equivalent to the uh, Theatre of Dionysius, at least in the sense that um, human characters, human mundane characters will be presented without masks and um, extraordinary, but not necessarily supernatural characters will be presented with masks. But very often, but the, you know, a lot of the fundamental principles. No, was the conflict between very mundane figures who would often have like fairly administrative roles in their character coming into contact with ghosts or gods or divine figures in some capacity. And there's also you know, um, and the other great one, the other great theater, which I think is actually possibly more pertinent in um, this context, is the Kabuki uh, tradition. Kabuki is has has something of an interesting history. It was originally performed exclusively by women. I learned um but then they were kind of edged out of um their capacity to perform um which again has an interesting parallel to theater in Britain, which um in both cases I think resulted in drag because you just couldn't have them involved and then um I mean we can do a whole we can do a whole other special on kind of like the weird. And the, then the strange kind of gender dimension of Elizabethan and pre Elizabethan theatre, but uh, Kabuki I think is perhaps more um, more pertinent to uh, the dramaturgy that we see in House because it's um, it's like hyper stylized uh, in a way that exceeds that um, that's present in the No theatre, and yeah, it's it's the name itself Kabuki is a uh, portmanteau. Um, the car syllable being music boo meaning dance and key meaning acting uh so something that straight from right from the offset um kind of brings forth and you know gives a a prominency to the um to the unreality of it to the consciousness that you are actually watching a play
1: similar to opera in the Mm. sense then a combined art form
0: yeah because opera is yeah opera is a combined art form and also you're very much expecting to see a series of uh, recognisable tropes in, um, in opera. You know, you've got a hero, you've got a heroine, you've got a hilarious case of mistaken identity, you've got these villains, and, um, and these characters, in a way that almost uh, mirrors the strange kind of character name determinacy of House, they will assign particular types of singing voices to, someone, uh, to someone's character. So the hero is, was traditionally a castrato, So now very often it's a female soprano or female alto who will be the hero or, you know, if it's a male hero, it'll be a baritone sometimes. the the classic example of being Siegfried. This is a digression. Um, But there was uh, one of the earliest historians of the Kabuki um, Theatre, one Samuel Later in his uh, book, uh, A Kabuki Reader, uh, describes it as an unrealistic art. It is an art of bold outlines in which the distinctiveness consists not in making the real look real, but in making the unreal look real, and by working on principles of symbolism and impressionism." Which, again, you know, feeds... is, is what we're effectively seeing in House, and... Yeah.
1: What it reminds me of, because it's interesting that what you have here, then, is a, a deeper historical cultural grounding for that anti-realist art forms, back kind of like it was coming back, we see here in House, rather than it being a, a more modern affair. It reminds me, actually, of um, we've mentioned this channel uh, on this podcast before, Carl Corgrin, uh the YouTube, his channel Browse Held High, a few years ago did a video called This Is Not A Movie about an Iranian uh, director who's under house arrest for political uh, crimes. And is... Cr- crimes. And... Um, Is forbidden from making films, but kind of like works his way around these rules by allowing his son to like film him on his iPhone, going about his house, and the movie was kind of like made from this because he didn't do any of the editing, so technically he didn't make or direct it. But what uh, Corgan talks about here is how in um, Shia Islam, because like often, like uh, often people make like blanket statements about how. Muslims do not tolerate images of the Prophet or something like that, which which is complete, which is very inaccurate and cuts across like it not only for all sorts of reasons. But one of the reasons why this is a completely wrong and bad thing to say is because in Shia Islam, images of the Prophet Muhammad, if they are done in a particular way, are 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 considered sort of, like, worthy of a form of devotion and so on. And, but the way that this kind of visual tradition em- uh, evolved in Iran was a focus on images which are anti-realist, because the idea being that um, it's not an idol if you know it isn't real, you know. It is a picture. Hmm. So this resulted in art forms, like, a visual arts which are extremely stylized, precisely for this reason. And in Iranian cinema... There is a strong, what we would describe in the West, as kind of like a sense of postmodernism, sort of like movies about movies or movies that kind of like, like like or movie. There's an example, the example he gives, I think it's a film called uh, A Girl Walking Home or something, which like during the filming of it, the act, the child actress, because about it's about a little girl gets lost on the way home from school. A child act, the child actress just gets kind of bored of what she's doing and just stops and just starts shouting at the director, and the film just carries on like just like next like just carries on <laughs> and uh and so yeah these we we used to think um in in the west at least of these anti-realist art forms being some kind of you know product of degenerate modernity and not like when we had good old plays like shakespeare or something <laughs> like that's so, no like it's like if you look at it co- cross-culturally and i'm certain if i well there's plenty lots of meta theater in shakespeare obviously but no there are plenty of like very, very ancient anti realist art forms uh, out there.
0: Yeah, and no, and totally. And also, but uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> and in this context as well, the anti realism, I think, plays into both something very pertinent about the kabuki tradition and House's debt to that, and also um, a point I was talking about at the beginning. But my point, and also something that connects to Arto, is the fact that um, so. When when uh, later describes the the idea of this unrealistic art, uh, it's very uh, kind of hyperreal and extremely stylized. Um, but also um, the plots that it detailed were often extremely strange, extreme, often absurd or farcical, but also extremely violent hmm. in a lot of cases. And there is actually a um, a term that is is has common currency in this in scholarship of this, which is uh, zankoku no Bai. Uh, which translates literally as the aesthetic of cruelty, Ooh. which almost sounds eerily similar to the theater of cruelty yeah um and and yeah and so it's it's and that's pertinent in this because it's creating a fantastical world where it is able to draw on this intense type of cruelty in a very very stylized way uh, in a way that's interesting because. The, the fact that it is so stylized and the fact that you are clearly seeing something that is a play means that they can really push the envelope into extremely upsetting and bloody themes because there is the perpetual sense that it's not real so it's it's almost like a sense of getting things under the cognitive radar mm. that you you don't quite react to it in the first instance with your cognitive uh senses because all you're seeing is a play, but then you you have to step back and interpret what's going on, and you realize, no, this is an extremely bloody and unpleasant thing that's happening. Usually involving things that I talked about earlier the traditional brutalities, such as, or you know, tradi- um, kind of ritualized brutalities, such as uh, the seppuku tradition of like suicide and self mutilation, or a term, uh, Kurashiba, which is just murder, but heavily stylized murder. And it's this. It's an interesting thing because it's what I was talking about earlier with um, the te- the tendency towards um, well, it, it ties into the thing I was talking about with the tendency to evoke the bloodiest things in one's past to as as a as a method of introspection. Um, it seems like this tradition is alive and well in the film *House*, in that we're seeing something extremely brutal, uh, extremely bloody, extremely unpleasant, and unsettling on a profound and um, on a profound and, you know, very personal level uh, or something, something, not personal, but something that strikes one in an unpleasantly intimate context. So things like the uh, implied sort of incest taboos or the subversions of parental care roles that come up. It's able to just move all this subversive stuff through in the, in the medium of a farce um and so i think that is something that that is something again like i was talking about with the Kuidan or the wronged woman tradition uh, of ghost story um the sense that um it's able whether that you know just coming back to Obiyashi, the um one of his singular achievements through this film is his ability to bring together old and new traditions um and give and revive old traditions while putting them in a um an extremely pertinent political context and to uh, demonstrate something intensely personal to him and I just think that's brilliant <laughs> I think that, and yeah. indeed it is yeah and but I mean then then we get on to the fact that there is another dimension to the strangeness of what we're seeing which is the fact that a large part of the absurdity of uh, the film and the incredible stylization um, comes not from um, comes not from tr- something uh, traditional or even Japanese, but um, one of the things that I will flag up, um, perhaps as a closing point, is the fact that House is profoundly influenced by the filmmakers of the French New Wave. And I feel like I should give at least a bit of a potted <laughs> history of the French New Wave, uh, but I'll try to keep it or Nouveau Vague, if you will. But I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. But it's basically Uh, a wave of French filmmakers um, in the 1950s to roughly the 1980s, when they just got too old to make films, who were influenced by uh, American films flooding back into Europe after the cessation of World War II. They were influenced by uh, the film noir tradition a great deal. I mean, that's why we say film noir, because it was kind of defined after the fact by French theorists. And... Um, I think to describe French New Wave, the way I tend to think about it is, it set the model for how we, what we think of as a independent art art house film aesthetic. This is if like, we if we think about an art house film, we'll usually be thinking about something that broadly resembles the French New Wave. So these are people like Godard. And, Godard,
1: um, Truffaut. Um, I, I, I imagine where I I don't like Family Go, but there is the one a wonderful one line that was just when one of like the characters just shouts people of france a good looking depressed guy smoking a cigarette is not a movie
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally no or um... is it (laughs) or is it um but i mean what i say when when i say that you know that um the the aesthetic of art film of course there is just like the evoking the frenchness of it which i think is what you've beautifully (laughs) described there but also um they were the ones who effectively. Sorry, I'm just thinking of those sat those SNL sketches of the hungry guys, like the one where they get Kirsten Stewart. Yeah. And they just
1: start speaking French.
0: Oh, I love that. Um, there's also. <laughs> what I think, are you hungry for? There is a beautiful. Um, there is a Portlandia sketch, in fact, where they just decide to do a whole skit as a French New Wave film, uh, which perfectly summarizes it, and I think is actually probably a good companion piece to. Why I want you to think of um, House as an extension of the French New Wave after the fact. Um, I mean, there I am drawing not just on visual similarities, but there is a, a direct connection that was evoked by Obiashi himself in his 1966 film, um, which is called Emotion, uh, which is visually very similar to House, but is effective. That is explicitly a um, an homage to the director Roger Vadim, uh, who was one of the figures kind of affiliated with the french new wave um and you know i would i would go so far as to say was a french new wave director although he's perhaps best known for barbarella but i mean we need to do Barbarella, actually. There is so do much we? We, there is so much we can say about Jane Fonda. We've I got have... a really fucking rum deal in Adam Curtis's Hypernormalization. She was still a socialist. She was still doing cool shit. She what she didn't just give up on politics
1: and start doing the semantics of the kitchen, which really the revolution does need. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, and you know, and also we could all do to stay in shape. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't yeah, I've not actually seen Barbarella. So. And also, yeah, I mean Jane Fonda comes up in if we're going to make a Really tenuous tie into a self-reference within our own episode. Have you seen that Iranian ghost story where the woman has? Ghost in the shell. The... No. Yeah. No. Is it called Ghost in the Shell? No, not Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's not...
1: that's the Japanese anime. This um, is getting too meta. Under the shadow. Under Sorry. The shadow.
0: Yeah. No. Uh, she has the like shell
1: three... in my head was the literal shell of the explosive lodged in the
0: ceiling of her apartment. Yeah. Sorry. No. I'm. Yeah, so she has contraband Jane Fonda tapes and they are liberating to her. And so maybe, 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 maybe Adam Curtis is being you, a Curtis. dick. I like I Adam know. Curtis. I like Adam Curtis. But he
1: is a libertarian. He was, our, he, was our introdu-
0: he was our introduction to why libertarians are shit. He set so many people on such a good course. And then it turns <laughs> well, uh, out I'm
1: is not sure libertarian strictly speaking. Like, I, don't I don't know. Categorically <laughs> shit. They just often are. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, but...
0: Um, So there's the Roger Vadam connection. The other thing that I would tie this in with the French New Wave is the fact that, um, well, it's it's kind of a secondary one because, or the the second of three, uh, this this form of secondary connection I um, identify from the fact that um, both the 1966 film Emotion and also House to some extent are very, very visually similar to Hard Day's Night. If yeah. you've ever seen it. The Hard mus- Di- yeah, Hard Day's Night, which was uh, credited with the birth of the music video. Mm. Um, you were saying, though? Yeah, literally just like, the music in this movie sounds like it's, the Beatles. It's Beatles <laughs> movies. I, you know, I begrudgingly, I, I hate talking about Hard Day's Night. I hate the Beatles. This is partly personal because I just kept getting weird men come up to me and say I look like John Lennon and I had to literally change gender to make that stop. <laughs> Things haven't improved. <laughs> but, um, but basically, um, yeah, so... The whole kind of, like, fun 60s music playing while groups of people lark about and get on different forms of public transportation. That is clearly having, you know, significant tie-ins to Hard Day's Night. But one of the other things that uh, Hard Day's Night is connected to is, simultaneously, the birth of the music video, but the birth of modern advertising. Yeah, the, yeah he they... made
1: commercials.
0: And this and guy. also he was he, he that's
1: that's how he cut his teeth. A bit. He made commercials.
0: Yeah, um, Obayashi was a was a com, was a commercial filmmaker. That was well, that was his main income. Mm. And so much of that ties in both with um, the visuals of it, but also his creative lineage, because he was he was evoking people who were also connected to commercial filmmaking. Mm. And and yeah, and, and House is eerily similar to the kind of, like, fantasy worlds that you see evoked in stuff like Vogue magazine, uh, where it's like, oh, they're, they're just, like, beautiful people posing in strange, mysterious circumstances that would never naturally occur kind of thing. It's it's all tied into that world, and I, I, I don't know. I think it's just a very, very good, interesting kind of cultural melting pot to think about this in terms of. But as well as that, you know we've got this Japanese director who we've talked about in such heightened terms in the context of figures like Antonin Artaud and the French New Wave and, and Deleuze and Guattari um, making something very, very quintessentially French because, because, you know, Hard Day's Night was obviously very heavily influenced by, by the French New Wave as well. So there's that kind of secondary connection there. So, um, I think I think it's entirely appropriate that we talk about um, Obayashi as someone conscious of um mid-century French philosophy and go, critical thought.
1: I think it is indeed true that Obayashi
0: was the fifth Beatle in a way. I mean he's certainly the third Deleuze I don't know. I don't, well I <sighs> <laughs> I see where you're going but I was actually serious. <laughs> um um uh, well no, 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 no I I I, well, I just want to bring up one point as well is the fact that stylistically there's that similarity but also um the French um directors of that time were both very political but also heavily connected with um the uh, academic philosophical scene and critical scene of that time and you you get things like um you know I watched a a conference where um, you know, it's Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, François Truffaut share a stage, hmm. um, and I think a similar thing happened. I don't know. Um... Yeah, but the intellectual like situation in France
1: at the time is just God. What I'd do for that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't not, not like saying I think they're right about everything. It's just sort of like, dear God, well that'd be brilliant. I assume I wasn't there for it. Maybe it was terrible. It probably was.
0: I wouldn't be vaping.
1: You wouldn't be vaping. I would
0: be smoking hot. Yeah, wouldn't be both.
1: Mm. Um, so, this is a horrible episode. <laughs> this is, uh, I, well, I for one have nothing left to say on this except I am he, as you are he, as you are me, and we are all together.
0: I like to, I, yeah, it's fun to end um, podcasts on a kind of huh feeling
1: yeah so this was um
0: yeah like um this has
1: been one hell of a journey i don't think we uh, could have
0: covered house in any other way
1: i mean i, I mean i think it's actually very appropriate It's just turned into a discordant mess of us just kind of like yelling and screaming and indeed visual like in an auditory manner i think this hasn't been very much like what watching houses like.
0: and so as cherries were made for eating and fish, fish were made, made to swim, swim in the, the sea, sea you were made to listen to us babble for over two hours about nobody else but me indeed. Keep it weird and stay safe.
2: As sure as cherries were made for eating and fish were made to swim in the sea